0: We'll hear argument now in number 89-994, West Virginia University Hospitals versus Robert Casey. Mr.
1: Adams. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. The issue in this case is whether experts' fees are compensable under the provisions of 42 U.S.C. Section 1988. West Virginia University Hospitals asked the Court to decide this issue, In the only way that would achieve Congress's stated intent to give civil rights litigants the opportunity to recover what it cost them to vindicate their rights in court. The fee-shifting provision in Section 1988, intended by Congress to be a full and complete remedy, enables the federal courts to return to their pre-Aliasca fee-shifting practices. And those practices included the shifting of experts' fees. Well, uh, what, what the statute
0: says, I guess, is that a uh, court may allow the prevailing party a reasonable attorney's fee as part of the costs. Now, do you say expert fees are attorney's fees, or do you say they're other parts of the cost?
1: We say that expert fees are. are part of the attorney's fee because they are part of the work product. In other words, reasonable attorney's fee is a term of art.
0: Even though conceitedly experts are not attorneys, concededly, they don't do attorney's work.
1: Conceitedly they are not, but before the, before the attorney can do his work, he has got to work with that expert so he knows how to present his client's case and how to prove it. Well, that would what be true of any, any witness. But with respect to to expert witnesses, it's particularly important, because when you're dealing with civil rights litigation, it's a rare case when you can have that kind of litigation go forward without an expert. And I think the the thing that drives that... That's
2: true. You can say that about any... You can't win a lawsuit without a witness unless it's just a question of law.
1: That's true, but if you have fact witnesses, you subpoena them, and they come to trial, and they're going to testify. Expert witnesses, unfortunately, have rents to pay, college tuitions to pay, and they normally will request some fee for their services. But I think the point that drives this home is the fact that when Congress enacted the fee-shifting provision in Section 1988, it did not sail into uncharted waters. Instead, it selected the language of Title well,
2: an attorney an attorney can certainly get uh, they can get attorneys' fees, and they can they can, they can recover a fee that reflects the time the attorney spent with an expert witness. If he's, he he goes and finds him, and he uh, works them up, and he knows his testimony, he can get an attorney's fee for that. But you say that the, that included in attorneys' fees is the separate sum. That he must pay the the expert.
1: Yes, sir, I do. Mm-hmm. We would respectfully submit. Any, the, and the expert is a witness. The expert can be a witness. Sometimes he is not. In this particular case, it turned out that all of our experts ended up testifying. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We would respectfully submit to the court that the starting point for this court's analysis of this issue ought to be the same starting point that this Court employed in the case of Missouri. But you
2: would, you, would, you would be making the same argument even if these experts did not testify?
1: I would be making the same argument, yes, sir.
2: I, I guess that's that, because you say the $30 provision just doesn't cover this. Just
1: doesn't pay, and, and quite candidly, Your Honor, uh, in today's litigation, uh, the, the attorney, I think, most often goes out, finds the experts, uh, gets them acquainted with the case so they can do their work, and in most instances, even though there may be uh, the initial expectation that the fee is going to be paid for by the client, I can assure you that that expert is going to look to that lawyer in the law firm to make sure that his, his bill gets paid to some extent. And that's very important to a lawyer, because if he is able to find quality people to be experts, and all of a sudden his experts don't get paid, I would submit that it's going to be very hard for that attorney to attract that expert again or other experts of like quality when they hear uh, that their fee is going to go unsatisfied.
3: Mr. Adams, I I guess there are a number of uh, federal statutes where there is express provision made for expert witnesses. Yes, Your Honor. And their fees. Yes, Your Honor. Um, And that was not done in Section 1988. Uh, Should that be a concern to us? Congress knows how to provide for them expressly.
1: I think that is probably the best argument that the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania has. But I think when the argument is examined, it doesn't wash, and for for a couple of reasons, Your Honor. First of all, just as an initial matter, you would have to completely ignore the legislative intent behind the fee-shifting provision in Section 1988. Secondly, what you're really suggesting is that Congress must use particular words in particular ways every time it legislates. You you effectively place Congress into a legislative drafting straitjacket, which is pretty much akin to the way we used to have old common law pleading, and courts and lawyers who were trained in pleading found that to be an unworkable situation, and I would submit it would not be appropriate to place Congress in an equivalent situation.
3: Well, I, I guess it's not unreasonable to think that we should apply the common, ordinary understanding of the words that Congress does choose to employ. That's not putting Congress in a straitjacket, would you say?
1: It is not, but when you find plain evidence of a legislative intent to work some other result, than the result would be if you followed a plain language construction.
3: But it's, it's just a little bit of a stretch, isn't it, to say an attorney's fee includes fees paid to... Experts.
1: With respect, Your Honor, I would disagree, and for this reason. If you examine both the Senate report and the House report, both reports specifically comment that they are selecting Title VII's fee-shifting language, and, the, and they say the reasons for that selection. They said, number one, the courts are familiar with these terms. They have interpreted these terms and have given them meaning, and furthermore, they cite case law, that had interpreted Title VII's uh, fee-shifting language. And when you examine that case law, they have interpreted Title VII's language to embrace experts' fees. Wow, well, and,
4: and you think that every committee member who signed on to that report not only read those cases and knew that that's what those cases said? That they cover not only attorney's fees, but also expert fees.
1: I think that's the presumption, Your Honor.
4: And it's also the presumption not only that the other members of the Congress read those committee reports, but also that the other members of Congress also read those cases that were cited in the committee reports. Even though, the committee as I understand it, the committee reports don't even say explicitly that experts' fees are covered. That's correct. All they do is cite these cases which had held that experts' fees were covered.
1: That's correct. And the theory
4: of the matter is that from that citation of the cases, we can be sure that the whole committee and the whole Congress intended expert fees to be covered.
1: I think that's the evidence that would be before the court, and I don't think there's any evidence to contradict that, particularly when you examine...
4: Well, there's the evidence of the language, which says attorney's fees, and the evidence of other statutes, which say attorney's fees and expert fees are recoverable. Now, if I'm a member of Congress and voting on that statute, I'm not going to go and read a committee report and then read the cases cited in the committee report. I'm going to know that, that when we say attorney's fees, we mean attorney's fees. And when we say attorney's fees and expert fees, we mean both. Your Honor... Isn't that, isn't that much more reasonable to assume?
1: I, I would disagree. I, I'm aware that you, uh, in some of your opinions, have approached legislative history in, in a different way than perhaps we would. No, but this,
4: is, this goes beyond legislative history. This goes relying on nothing but the name of a case, which, which you expect the members of Congress to have read.
1: But I think, Your Honor, when you look at the entire set of contemporaneous circumstances that surrounded the enactment of these, this fee-shifting provision, it is absolutely clear, in my opinion, that the Congress wanted to abrogate the effects of Ali Eska with respect to civil rights litigation. And they were particularly concerned that when they took this legislative action, that they supply something that was a meaningful and fully compensatory remedy.
2: It just m- dealt with the attorney's fees. It didn't deal with expert witnesses.
1: Well, unfortunately, I think uh, everybody concluded from reading your opinion, Justice White, that it had... To no, that
2: wasn't my opinion. It was the court's opinion.
1: You're correct, Your Honor. But I think everybody assumed, and I believe correctly so, that based upon that opinion, it would be a uh, very uh, weak argument to to suggest that that opinion
5: did not reach to expert feats this presumption that the members of Congress, or at least the committee have read all the cases is have we said there's that that presumption
1: i don't think you have said it in those terms, but I don't think that this court has ever abandoned the notion that legislative reports and whatever legislative, other legislative history exists is not something appropriate to look at, and further... When,
0: when, the, when the statutory language is ambiguous. And I think in this case, Your Honor... You think attorney's fees is ambiguous, so that just reading that language, it might include expert witness fees? I think to people who are aware of... Wh- you can answer that question, yes or no. And then you can explain your... I think it is
1: ambiguous to the uninitiated.
0: Do the uninitiated
1: consist? Like a, <laughs> certainly not, Your Honor.
2: <laughs> well, uh, absent any legislative history, would you say the language is ambiguous? If, if there absent was, any
1: legislative if history? There was no legislative no. history. It was just this statute. I would probably not be sitting here today.
2: So you say it would not be ambiguous?
1: If there were not this legislative yes, history, yes. if there were not this set of contemporaneous circumstances... So you say this
2: is, a, this is a plain language case, and I lose.
1: If, if all you do is look to the four corners of this statute, if you are not willing to ask the additional question of what else was Congress trying to do, yes, I think I do lose. Of course,
6: you'd lose the paralegal case, too, wouldn't you? Yes, yeah.
1: and I think that's the significance of this Court's beginning of of its analysis in the Missouri v. Jenkins case, because in the very initial part of that decision, it's apparent to me that this Court considered and rejected the plain language argument that's being advanced by the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania today.
6: In fact, we rejected it 8 to 1, didn't we?
1: I believe it was 7 to 1. I believe Uh, it's 8 to
6: 1 on the question whether any paralegals were allowed. Only the Chief Justice wrote and said, no fees at all for paralegals.
1: I I will defer to you, Justice Stevens, but I believe Justice Marshall took no part in that decision. I I hope to get his vote today.
3: (laughs) But I I suppose there's quite a difference between paralegals and expert witnesses. Paralegals are, are in essence, doing part of the attorney's work, are they not?
1: They clearly are, and so are And
3: expert witnesses are... Perhaps more like independent contractors, in a sense, they're they're outside the law office and the lawyers work.
1: With respect, I would disagree. Um, I think you are. I think that with that you're trying to draw a distinction based upon employment relationships, and I think uh, Judge Posner's decision in the, for the Seventh Circuit is particularly good in explaining that if you really examine that that doesn't seem to be a very appropriate basis for a distinction uh, you can have uh, you've got to you pay for a paralegal in order to make this full and complete remedy but you don't pay for the expert and yet the expert probably provides a far more valuable service and the attorney needs access to his services more than he does his own paralegal.
5: Well, then you disagree with Missouri versus Jenkins because that was the rationale of Justice Brennan. He said that attorneys' fees include secretaries, those that are integral to the operation of the office. And it seems to me that page 2470 uh, that that's all he means.
1: With respect, I would disagree. I, I read I read his decision as indicating that any person whose labor has contributed to the work product of the attorney ought to have... No,
5: for which an attorney bills bills the client.
1: And before the attorney can bill his client for a successful prosecution of a civil rights claim, he has got to work with that expert. He cannot even seriously consider taking the case unless he knows there is some reasonable expectation in a meritorious civil rights case of being able to pay that expert. And w-
0: when you refer to civil rights cases, uh, you obviously refer to your own case here, where the uh, West Virginia University Hospital sued uh, the state of Pennsylvania, sued the governor of Pennsylvania, uh, on a, a statute where it claimed it had some entitlement. So you're really not talking about civil rights in any narrow sense. You're talking about any plaintiff who has a claim under
2: uh, federal law.
1: As broadly as this court has construed that, in my particular uh, situation, of course, Your Honor, you, this court... You are
2: talking about somebody who couldn't
1: independently, wouldn't independently have the money to pay the expert. I think I am talking about that person, because if you were to decide this case against my client, it would seem to me that you have established a precedent, not just for my client who had the, the fortune of having some kind of cash flow, but you have also set a precedent for the individual who did not... Well, that may the, be, but, uh, but uh, your client has the money to
2: pay the expert.
1: Not true, Your Honor, and let me explain why. I would direct the Court's attention to uh, page B-48 in the Petition's Append- uh, Appendix. There, the District Court discusses the testimony of Dr. James Vertries, who was the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania's expert. And the reason the District Court was discussing that particular testimony was that Dr. Vertrees had clearly testified that the imposition of Pennsylvania's payment system on a hospital such as my client had the potential, the real potential, of bankrupting a large university teaching hospital. and That's particularly serious in a Medicaid program because if you examine the legislative history to the Social Security Act, you'll find that Congress had an expressed concern or these large teaching hospitals that, to put it bluntly, are the dumping grounds of, of, for poor patients. And so my client, as I said, it had a cash flow. But I would respectfully submit my client did not have a deep pocket that was unending. So it's very important if we're going to continue to deliver, in my client's case, needed health care to our indigent citizens, that they are able to recover what it costs them to vindicate their rights in federal court. I would point out to the court with respect that this court has not shied away from rejecting plain language arguments when it has come to Section 1988. Missouri v. Jenkins was not the first time this court so held. I would point you specifically to the Christiansburg garment case where you rejected that kind of argument because it would have frustrated Congress's intent. Likewise, in related fee-shifting statutes, EJA, for example, the Clean Air Act shifting statute, you have not given any uh, credence to arguments based on minor variations in language between one statute and another. You have been more concerned about ensuring that Congress's intent behind those statutes uh, was followed, except that if you know, if we if we ignore
4: the plain language of what the statute says and goes to what Congress intended, I doubt whether very many members of Congress thought that civil rights actions consisted of, of suits by by hospitals, uh, for-profit hospitals, some of them, uh, for millions of dollars that were wrongfully withheld under a statute uh, on uh, for, for for Medicaid treatments. I don't. How many members of Congress do you think cons- would consider that a civil rights action? That's what they had in mind when they were talking about civil rights actions. I not very many,
1: Your Honor. I don't know really how to answer that, other than well, the, the way to answer
4: it is the statute says what it says, and it describes this kind of an action, and uh, and that's good enough.
1: I, do, I disagree because I think if Congress was truly serious about making any kind of promise to the American people. It had to be a substantial promise, not a hollow promise. And I would submit that it is a hollow promise if expert witnesses cannot be made available to all civil rights litigants. I would also respectfully submit that the adoption of the construction that we are proffering to the court is fully consistent with the notion that we are dealing with a remedial statute is entitled to a broad construction. Furthermore, we believe that that notion of a broader construction than the one being offered up by Pennsylvania is also consistent with the notion of work product, as we find that mentioned in the Jenkins case, because this Court has said that the work product doctrine is an intensely practical doctrine, grounded in the realities of litigation, and experts are a reality of litigation, whether we like it or not. West Virginia's construction, we believe, is fully consistent with every expression of legislative intent that we can find.
2: also make the same argument about <clears throat> private detectives.
1: If an investigator...
2: Here's, with- uh, here's, a, here's a case that uh, a lawyer wants to hire an investigator to find out the facts and find some witnesses, and, and he just won't get off the ground without him.
1: Qualified, yes, Your Honor, and let me explain the qualification. As we understand the legislative history behind Section 1988, Congress intended to restore the courts to what their practice had been in fee shifting prior to the Alyeska decision. I am not here to suggest that that means that we should vest into the federal court's the ability to further expand whatever that equitable fee-shifting policy was. Instead, I'm suggesting that whatever it was in 1975, that's what Congress intended to give back. Now, if investigators, which are not a part of this case, if investigators had been considered a part of the appropriate fee-shifting under pre-Aliasca practice, yes, I would give you the a yes answer to that. Uh,
2: you think prior to Aliasca... Uh, it was, it was <clears throat> accepted practice to shift the shift the, uh, the costs or uh, expert witness fees to the loser?
1: Yes, sir. The, in the court, exercising its discretion, and if you examine uh, our footnote 15 on page 18 of the opening brief, you will see what we hope is a fairly complete uh, list of the reported cases on that point. We have certainly found no reported case it suggests otherwise, nor have we seen any case cited by the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania for a contrary uh, position. But we believe that the construction that we would offer to you today is consistent with the intent to encourage the private enforcement of civil rights. We think it's consistent with the notion of creating a broad remedy We think it's consistent with the purpose of equalizing the resources between the litigants, and we do think it is fully consistent with a continuation of the pre aliasca practice.
3: Mr. Adams, I suppose in any event, if these witnesses were to testify in court, that the Crawford case would limit the payment to $30 a day.
1: I've given that a great deal of thought, Your Honor, and I can say that, yes, you could probably construct an argument where you could draw the line in that fashion, but I don't really think that's the correct place to draw the line. The reason being...
3: Crawford said, at least, in the opinion that expert witnesses are limited by the statute to $30 a day, absent explicit authorization to the contrary.
1: Yes, ma'am. Yes, Your Honor. But two responses to, to qualify my answer. Number one, if you examine the provisions of Section 1821, which was the uh, subject matter of Crawford, clearly Congress uh, um, there's a clear recognition that Congress might come in with some other fee shifting statute to supplant 1821, 1920, and 54, and we believe 1988 is such a statute. Um, and my second point has just gone out of my head, and I apologize for that. <laughs> um, but going back to Pennsylvania's arguments, we believe when you examine their arguments that they are plainly inconsistent with the expressions of legislative intent that we can find for this statute. It would not encourage private enforcement, at least in those cases where the uh, civil rights plaintiff d- does not have the means to proceed, Uh, It's not a full and complete remedy. It's an incomplete remedy. There certainly would be no level playing field between a state actor who can access the state treasury and the private litigant. And and lastly, the pre-Aliasca practice simply is not restored. We think in the final analysis, reasonable attorney's fee is a term of art. It's just as Judge Posner described it. In the Friedrich case, it's a shorthand expression. And I can only go back and iterate the point that I made earlier, that Congress did... It's
6: a shorthand expression for what?
1: I think the way he phrased it is, it's a shorthand expression for what the courts were doing, what was taken away from them, and what Congress then restored to them. And that's why I would go back to the point where if we try to draw lines between testimonial and non-testimonial services, it seems to me, really, the better approach is to look at what pre aliesca practice was. And I don't believe that line drawing took place at that time. I see that my time is about up. I'd like to reserve
7: the balance for rebuttal, if I may.
0: Very well, Mr. Adams. Mr. Coons, we'll hear now from you.
7: <clears throat> Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice. And may it please the Court. We believe the starting point for the Court's analysis in this case uh, should begin with the Crawford decision, rather than the Missouri versus Jenkins opinion. Uh, in Crawford, the Court specifically said that the $30 a day limit for attendance fees for witnesses in Federal Court was fully applicable uh, to expert witnesses, and further said that uh, this limitation would be respected, or had to be respected, by Federal Courts unless there was some explicit statutory authorization which would modify uh, the limit. Uh, the Court went on to say that repeals by implication were not favored, and that it would not lightly infer Uh, that the limitations of the $30 a day uh, limit would be repealed absent some statute or authority explicitly referring to witness fees. Quite simply, 1988, Section 1988, upon which Petitioner relies to shift the cost of expert witness fees, contains no specific authorization. It contains no specific authorization either in the plain language of the statute, which refers to a reasonable attorney's fee and not a witness fee, nor does it contain any explicit statutory authorization in the legislative history, which contains in the comments and the floor debates no reference to witness fees whatsoever. And finally,
6: may may I ask you a, a question about your interpretation of the plain language, just focusing on the language for a minute. Do you read the statute as saying it authorizes the prevailing party in the discretion of the court? to recover, one, attorney's fees, and secondly, where it says costs, does that mean taxable costs to you? What does the word costs mean? And, of course, a witness fee of $30 a day would be a taxable cost.
7: Well, what I read the statute, 1988, Justice Stevens, as saying is that a reasonable attorney's fee is allowed as part of the cost. Right. I interpret that as adding t- to section nineteen twenty eight USC nineteen twenty another item of taxable cost in the form of an attorney. So
6: attorney's it's fee. that other than <coughs> attorney's fees and those items that are taxable by statute as costs, that's it.
7: That's the way now, I interpret it. Now, now putting
6: aside for a moment the paralegal problem, because I under- what about things like Justice White indicated, investigators, telephones, Xerox. Uh, transportation to depositions, a lot of things that are not taxable as costs, but are commonly billed by lawyers to their clients as expenditures or disbursements. And I notice in this case there were $45,000 of disbursements that you did not challenge, most of which were not taxable costs.
7: That's correct, Your Honor. We did not challenge them in this case, however,
6: why didn't you if the language <coughs> was as plain as you say it is?
7: Well, Your Honor, we wanted to choose our issues, and the decision was simply made that we would not contest those those expenditures. You're just
6: giving the state's money away, weren't you? under your view of the case
7: Well, your Honor, we made it we, we made a decision as right. to as but to. but under your to view
6: of the case you could have challenged most of that $45,000.
7: I think some of those expenditures we may have been able to challenge. Right.
4: Well, including cab fare for the attorney to get to the deposition? Well, Justice, I thought you meant by attorney's fees anything that the attorney would normally bill to the client for his work in the case, which would include that stuff, Justice, including Xeroxing.
7: Excuse me, Justice Scalia, I, I think that... Many of those items probably would have been better looked at as cab fare and so forth, as items which the attorneys would absorb in t- terms of overhead rather than billing directly. Well, some
4: attorneys the bill them separately. I and mean, let's assume you have just as some attorneys bill paralegal time separately and some don't. You can either bump your rate up or you can you can uh, show it separately. But let's assume that uh, an attorney shows, uh, in, in his billing, uh, shows travel expenses separately, as many do. Airfare, I'm not sure about cab fare, but airfare. Yes, fare. they did in this case and as they did in this case. You, you wouldn't consider that to come within attorney's fees?
7: <clears throat> what I would consider to be within attorney's fee, Your Honor, in conjunction with the court's decision in Missouri versus Jenkins, is work which is performed by an attorney, work which is uh, uh, monies which can be incorporated into overhead uh, in terms of the lawyer's office, what it takes him to run his office. Uh, and, and that, I think, would would be it.
4: And not anything else that's necessary for him to do his part of the case?
7: Well, Your Honor, there might be a few things. Uh, no, I would have to say that that's, that that's correct. That the, the other items, I think, would have to be absorbed um, in, in, perhaps, the attorney's the attorney's rate. Are you
6: answering, Justice Helia, You you now reading the statute differently than when you answered my question? What about Xerox, just Xerox expenses, long-distance telephone, travel to a deposition? Those are not taxable as costs, but now you're saying they are part of attorney's
7: fees. Your Honor, I think perhaps they could be uh, in connection with those types of things that are uh, done in the office for the attorney to present the case. Although I point out, well, what
6: if, the, what if, as a normal practice in a particular community, the lawyer normally hires A an investigator, B an expert to just help him on on reading forged documents, say, and he normally bills the client disbursement, expert to help reading forged documents, and that's the normal practice that community. Does he recover it or not under your, your view?
7: I think not, Your Honor, because I think that the the phrase reasonable attorney's fee has to be given some kind <clears throat> of meaning. Uh, to Not say, the meaning Justice To say, simply, Justice Leas, to right, say simply that it means all expenses of litigation is really to deprive it of, of any meaning whatsoever. I think uh, Justice Stevens... No, but
6: his suggestion was it means all expenses normally charged by an attorney in performing the routine work of an attorney in trying a lawsuit.
7: Well, Your Honor, if I accepted that earlier, I reject it, because if, if we get to, get to the level of an investigator and that sort of thing...
4: And I, I reject it, too. I didn't, I didn't say that. <laughs> Thank you, I said nor- normally charged by an attorney for his work in the suit. If it's charged for somebody else's work, I mean, and that's, that's where paralegals are different, because that's uh, his work, he can do it himself, or he can have somebody else do his work and, and bill that. Anyway,
6: but I'm not Don't not include sure. me in your condemnation. I mean, I'm, not, I, I'm still not clear whether long-distance telephone travel to depositions and so forth is included or not. they a secretary. You have to hire a secretary to do work late at night.
7: Well, Your Honor, I think you've suggested in Missouri, or it has been suggested in Missouri v. Jenkins, that that might be an item that would be includable, at least as overhead, although I don't know that it would be separately billable. Uh, but in any case, uh, in this case, we do have a statute which specifically...
6: Well, I'm thinking of items that are not overhead. They're work that is especially required for a particular piece of litigation, which lawyers regularly charge, and they list down their disbursements. And they normally get them, and you had them in this case $45,000 worth, which you didn't challenge.
7: Well, Your Honor, we did, that did actually represent a compromise of a claim. Uh, we did, we did negotiate a settlement. But of you,
6: you didn't so we challenge, we did. you, you disagreed as to certain items, I know, but you didn't challenge the general principle.
7: Well, we, we didn't challenge it in this case, Your Honor. We think that the uh, argument of the petitioner really boils down to, to this, that they're asking the court to uh, rewrite the language of the statute because they say that its purpose would be better served Uh, and that it would be a better law, it would effectuate Congress's purpose better if it included more things. Uh, We think that it is certainly true that Congress intended to promote uh, private enforcement of civil rights laws, but that it did not intend to write a blank check. It chose a very specific means to do that. Uh, The means that it chose was to award a reasonable attorney's fees and to shift that major expense of litigation uh, in favor of the prevailing party. It did this also to make legal representation available to civil rights plaintiffs. It's certainly true that Congress could have done more. Congress could have said that it wanted to provide all expenses of litigation. It could have said it wanted to award treble damages or liquidated damages, but it did not. Now, clearly, all of those things would have done more to encourage private enforcement of civil rights actions. But Congress did not choose those avenues, and it would be no more proper to write into the law Uh, an expert witness fee as part of the cost, then it would be to include those items as well. Uh, We say that the, the Court should respect the limits of the language that Congress used, which deserve certainly as much respect as the ends, as well as respect the limits that Congress set on taxable costs in 1920 and 1821. Secondly, we say that the legislative history does not show that Congress meant to include expert witness fees. The fees, the only reference that Petitioner can point to are several witnesses who, at the subcommittee level, uh, requested that expert fees added would be added. Um, the issue of witness fees is never mentioned in any report or in floor debates, and there is certainly no evidence of clear congressional intent, such as the court in Crawford said it would require, even by examining the legislative history. Congress specified, in other pieces of litigation, when it wanted to award expert witness fees as part of the costs. Uh, for example, in many, many cases which we've cited, at pages 34 and 37, or statutes of our brief, uh, Congress specified reasonable attorney's fees as well as expert witness fees. Some of these statutes were passed right around the time that uh, the amendments to Section 1988 were being debated. Uh, the Toxic Substance Act, for example, the Natural Gas Pipeline Safety Act, and the Resource Conservation and Recovery Act. Uh, so it does appear that Congress knew how to specify both expert fees and attorney's fees when it wanted to do so, uh, and here it did not. We say, again, that, that the result that we're urging is not in conflict with the Court's decision in Missouri versus Jenkins, because in that case, uh, we did not have a specific statute which governed the item of cost, as we have here. And in addition, it is a, it is a different thing, we think, to say that attorney, that attorney's fees may include paralegal time uh, than to say that it may include expert witness time. Uh, paralegals are a separate class of legal assistant who are trained in the law and who typically do for lawyers, at a cheaper rate, that kind of work that they would have to do themselves otherwise. They do work which typically eventuates into a legal work product. That's not the case with expert witnesses or with any witness. Witnesses are in the business of giving testimony, of producing evidence. And we think that to to apply the term attorney's fee to witnesses would really be to distort it beyond all recognition and deprive it of all meaning whatsoever. In conclusion, we think our construction fairly gives effect to all three statutes as Congress wrote them, is fully in accordance with Crawford and is not inconsistent with Jenkins and respects the fact that in some statutes Congress chose to shift both expert fees and attorney's fees and in other statutes it did not.
4: Mr. Coons, uh, uh, maybe you've said this, what what is your position with respect to expert fees that uh, do not result in expert testimony and were not intended to result in expert testimony? Let's say the, the, the lawyer... Consults an expert to uh, to find out something about the case.
7: Yes, Justice Scalia. <clears throat> is posi- that attorney's fees? Our position would be that would not be because it is not work done by an attorney that results in a, in a legal work product. Although, of course, the court would be free to, to resolve, reserve that issue mm-hmm. for another day, as, as, the, as the witnesses here were purely testimonial witnesses.
6: Well, supposing in like a case against Brown against the Board of Education, the. Lawyers uh, decide to hire some historians to do a lot of research on the enactment of the Fourteenth Amendment and so forth. Strictly to help them prepare their brief, attorney's fees or not?
7: I think not, Your Honor. Under our construction, it would not be work done by an attorney, um, and, and it wouldn't be wouldn't be compensable. Well,
3: Mr. Coons, what do you make of the language <clears throat> in Missouri versus Jenkins to the effect that the term "reasonable attorney's fees"? must refer uh, to a a reasonable fee for the work product of an attorney. The fee must take into account the work not only of attorneys, but also of secretaries, messengers, librarians, janitors, and others whose labor contributes to the work product for which an attorney bills her client.
7: We interpret that, that phrase, Your Honor, as referring to those people that are necessary in the running of the attorney's office and who assist the attorney uh, in generating the the work product.
3: Well, by its terms, it's not so limited, is it?
7: It may not be, Your Honor, but that is that is our construction of it. Thank you, Your Honor. Well, you just
2: <clears throat> it's just wrong to say that 1988 covers uh, all reasonable expenses incurred by an attorney in representing a civil rights plaintiff.
7: I think that that is that is our construction.
0: Thank you, Mr. Coons. Uh, Mr. Adams, you have five minutes remaining.
7: Thank you.
1: With respect, I would disagree with uh, Mr. Coons' uh, statement that the witnesses in this case were purely testimonial. That is not correct, and I believe that the bills that we have supplied to you in the appendix demonstrate that for two years, for two years before we got to trial... We were working hand in glove with these experts in how to draft the pleading, in how to develop discovery strategy, in how to assess and analyze the discovery results that we were finally uh, given in this case.
5: Does the record show they were, that they were the regular counsel for the hospital, regular accountants for the hospital, or that? I don't
1: believe the record shows that, and that, that is not correct, because as a matter of fact, it was uh, myself and my uh, colleague, Mrs. Krebs, who essentially located the experts uh, for the hospital to see whether or not there was a case to bring in view of the hospital's belief that they were not getting paid the right amount of money.
5: And, and what about the billing? Does the record reflect uh, that the billing was directly to the client?
1: Uh, The record doesn't reflect, but I will uh, stipulate that the billing did go straight from the experts to the client after it had been approved by me. But I think the point that's so crucial, particularly in modern civil rights litigation, is that lawyers do not sit in their ivory tower by themselves. They sit there next to their experts. And if you deny the attorney access... Mr. Coons,
6: this is also true in antitrust litigation. Do you know what the practice is with the fee-shifting st- provisions of the antitrust laws?
1: Your Honor, I've stayed so far away from antitrust law, I would not even want to hazard a guess on that. I, I don't have an answer. For
6: there are that. a lot of experts there, and it's been a fee-shifting fee sh- statute that's been on the books a long time. But you don't know what the answer is.
1: I really do not
4: that, uh, you know, gee, uh, you can't have an attorney uh, without uh, without all these experts, would would really apply across the board to every other kind of statute as well.
1: That's true. But, you know, there is one unique distinction about 1988 in comparison to all these other fee-shifting statutes that we have. And that is, to the best of my knowledge, 1988 is a statute which addresses not only Violations of federal statutory law, it is in place to address constitutional violations. And we had one in this case, a violation found uh, by the District Court of the Equal Protection Clause. And I find it somewhat amazing that you could have a fee-shifting statute that, granted, it's part of a very important national policy for the environment, which covers experts, but when you get to the area of constitutional violations, Congress was somehow inept and didn't uh, cover fees in that arena. It just doesn't make sense with all due respect.
4: Well, maybe it, maybe it thought, uh, you know, when, when you think of environmental litigation, you think of experts right away. When you think of civil rights cases, as I think civil rights cases meant, what civil rights cases meant to Congress, you don't as automatically think of expert witnesses.
1: That may be true, but as a matter of fact, today, if we are to give honor to this notion of work product, this intensely practical doctrine, I think the court ought to. But I would,
2: you would then be making the same argument in, on in any other fee shifting statute, which simply said the prevailing plaintiff in this kind of a case is entitled to recover reasonable attorney's fees.
1: If it had the same I, legislative history? No, no,
2: no, 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 just attorney's fees. I thought you were really arguing that, uh, that reasonable expenses that, were, that, uh, that are necessary for the attorney to represent the client that can be compensated under attorney's fees.
1: My case is only about a civil rights violation under Section 1983. Well, you, re, you mean you're going
2: to... If we don't think the, the uh, legislative history is 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 that potent, you lose. Is that it?
1: I think that is correct, Your Honor.
2: Mr. Adams. Uh, yes, sir. Somebody that works with you two years crazy. working up questions and
1: answers and you know, all... And as a witness, in this case, we were fortunate that the people who... Do you ever use any other
6: experts to work up your cases?
1: Yes, sir. Yes, Your Honor. Do you
2: get fees for that?
1: Yes, Your Honor. Or do you get fees for them to testify? You should get fees for both functions.
2: You because-
1: do? Yes, Your Honor. That's, that's what our position would be. I didn't say what's your position. I said, what is a fact? What is a fact, yes, until until the court... These people
2: work up a case with you, and I would consider that legal work.
1: You're exactly right, Your Honor.
2: Well, if you call one of your lawyers as a witness, would that be an expert witness?
1: Uh, your Honor, I guess it would depend on what he was testifying about, but yes, I guess he could qualify as an expert witness.
0: Thank you, Mr. Thank Adams. You. The case is submitted.